I am James Furs, and I'm the non-executive chair of what has hitherto been known as the Little, Semp- Little Hampton Cycle Path Team, which has been lobbying for a particular route to connect the National Cycle Path between Newton Abbott and really on down to Plymouth and beyond um, via Totnes. So I wonder if you could tell us the story of the Little Hempston cycle path. It has a long history and in a way that is commendable because the, those who've been pushing for this for some time have never sort of diminished in their energy and effort um, but have been frustrated at times by the lack of progress and the ability to engage with stakeholders who really hold the key to unlocking this particular pathway for them. It has been running for many, many years and driven by a logic that this is the most attractive and more importantly safest route uh, from the villages in between Newton Abbott and Totnes to get to this main communications town and then late take the route on down to the southwest um, beyond Plymouth. And uh, so why, what's your sense of wh- wh- where this campaign has got to? What's, what's happened, what progress has been made and what's stopping progress from happening? The campaign has been successful in whittling down the options for the route because inevitably between Newton Abbott and Totnes there are many routes this particular cycle path could take picking up as many villages in the safest way possible. A number of years ago, a range of routes were offered, and really it's come down to two. Uh, One is to take uh, the cycle path uh, through Staverton and Huxham's Cross, which effectively bypasses Totnes completely, although does pick up uh, the cycle path from Darting into Totnes. The other is a much more direct route through the villages uh, that really avoids pretty much all main roads uh, and then comes right into the heart of Totnes by the railway station, which is self-evidently the communication hub with buses and trains for the South Hams. By having two options and polarising them, there is a risk around that, but it has given really great focus to bring absolutely to the fore the impediments to creating the preferred route, which is over the footbridge by the South Devon Railway, uh, as opposed to a route that goes uh, more onto main roads. So at the present time, uh, the team is focusing on ways in which it can bring stakeholders together to achieve the preferred route, which is through the villages from uh, Newton Abbott through into Totnes. And so the current situation is that is, is that the negotiations are still ongoing, or does it feel like it's got stuck? No, the, the discussions are ongoing, and I think when we look at how these problems arise and how they might be resolved, the one success, I would say, of the cycle path team, as I shall call them for shorthand, is they recognise that the tactics that they've deployed up until the last sort of 18 months have been more of the direct action kind and maybe have not thought through carefully enough how stakeholders like to see receive information and be engaged with. So this isn't about my capability as an individual, but the presence of uh, a neutral person who has a good understanding of the arguments both sides as a quasi-mediator has been seen by the stakeholders as a very positive thing. And the comment I've received directly, again, regardless of my performance in doing it, was that the presence of somebody like me has been really useful in taking the heat out of what had hitherto been a more shrill and confrontational campaign. So as a result, I've been able to improve understanding amongst key stakeholders, local authority, landowners, of 
the route, the issues surrounding it. So at least decisions and positions that are being taken are better informed and that also allows me to support the psychopath team in thinking of ways to address what are legitimate concerns of the stakeholders. I guess as, as, as community groups, our kind of default position when we want to shift something like that is to go into what you call the sort of shrill kind of mode and to run campaigns and to try and be as much of a nuisance and, and put pressure on as possible. Is your sense that actually it would have been better to have taken a different approach from the beginning or that actually where we find ourselves now is that it's moved a certain distance because of the more adversarial kind of campaigning and now it just needs a different approach to take it further. I wonder what advice you would give to other communities who might be at the early beginning stage of something like this. There has to be a period of awareness raising uh, and inevitably these sorts of um, projects succeed by a weight of public opinion and public interest from those who will be the beneficiaries of whatever it is that's being considered. So I think it's inevitable that there will be a, a, a public element to um, the campaign. It, it wouldn't survive otherwise because, again, if you're looking to bring people together and persuade people, they need to understand that this matters and that this is important. And I think one of the issues with the psychopath has been perhaps seen by some stakeholders as being a little local issue, trying to give a shortcut into Totnes for 200 people, rather than seeing it as a national issue where the connecting of the cycle route nationally um, affects many more people beyond the village of Little Hempston. So I think there's something about how you position a campaign that needs to be thought through, which won't apply everywhere, but I think is probably an opportunity that was missed early on here. When it comes to engaging with those who may take a contrary view, uh, then again I come back to an early point around reflecting on how the people you're trying to address like to receive information. And the risk of a direct, direct action campaign is it's a one-size-fits-all approach. And the risk is you may find some of the key people you want to influence are receptive to that and others who are simply not. And I think care taken to understand... I mean, it sounds like a military campaign, but think really carefully about those whose minds you really have to influence to make something happen, and then reflect carefully about how they like to receive information. So part of my engagement has been to do a bit of repair work, uh, not make huge apologies on behalf of the previous campaigners, but I have recognised openly that they got a few things wrong. And that notion of humility in discussion has, I think, been a help in this situation. So yes, right to raise awareness, right to show the the breadth and depth of interest in finding resolution. But before um, direct action type campaigning gets underway, really think hard about those people you wish to influence. And in the end, um, what might make them feel vulnerable if they weren't to come to the table and have a discussion? So it is about having you know, historic, true, um, almost military campaigning tactics you mentioned before about the, the national context here. So at the moment we operate in a political climate where communities are, on paper at least, being given all manner of powers through the Localism Act, the right to build, the right to bid, and so on and so on. Uh, you know, referendum powers on certain things. Um, what's your sense of, of the balance of that? And for a campaign like this, what what powers, what additional powers would be useful. I was, I was up in Scotland recently, and in Scotland they have this thing called the Community Empowerment Bill, which is going through the Scottish Parliament, and the, one of the powers in that is, a, is an absolute right to buy. 
So it would be a community compulsory purchase order power, which would have been extremely useful in this case. <laughs> yeah, I think that the... Hmm. Potentially. Yeah, my, my feeling around... If we take this particular project, or perhaps almost any project, is, is where you have um, an idea, a campaign that you wish to progress that seems eminently sensible and will benefit many, but you encounter people who hold um, all the kind of positions that say they don't want this to happen either because of funding or land use or whatever there is a risk that if you take a, a coercive, a compulsory purchase or a, a community purchase to resolve the issue it has to be done with real care because you're going to have to be neighbours with these people and have a relationship with them for you know many many years to come so my preference which perhaps is more of my nature is to try and come up with consensus a coalition of willing partners rather than taking the route of coercion um, because that isn't in the spirit of achieving a harmonious community and in the very particular instance we're talking about whilst it may be possible to force through at some point a particular route the route will cross the land of three people it will affect tenants of some of the land or property and their ability to make life unpleasant through their own direct action however that might be um, is just a, is just clearly a risk and so I still believe that consensus is right but I think the need is to explore and make it very clear to all sides what the, the rules are, what the lie of the land is, so one could pull a particular lever if one wished. It's interesting the, the, the role that, you, that you're talking about playing, that kind of mediator role. You know, all too often we kind of think in terms of we, this is happening, we don't agree with it, so we need to... So the default position is to rush to this place where you're in the opposition place. Mm. If, if instead we were to, people were to look at filling that space, that kind of media space, what do you think of the media space? What would you say are the, the qualities of that? What, what kind of skills does one need in order to, to perform that role? And what's, it, and what's it like to be in that place? Um, for a mediator, say, let's call me a mediator, to be engaged, then one or other party's got to think this is a good idea and find somebody. And so it's how you build trust and confidence between the two parties that you will be an honest broker of information um, between the two sides, we'll call it an adversarial situation. So inevitably, it was the psychopath team that found me, and well, I knew them through friends really, but asked me if I'd get involved. I got involved because I have a strong sense of justice and fairness, and it just seemed peculiar that this wasn't happening, and you know, could I play a part to actually sort of rebalance um, the relationship? So you, it comes from someone who, bearing in mind, is I do it for nothing, I'm not paid for doing it, uh, it's one that's a project that interests me because I'm just intrigued by um, human nature, use of language and all those things. So that's why it attracts me to start off with. In terms of the benefit that it brings, then you have to have a very clear, logical mind to be a very active listener in uh, trying to establish some kind of rapport of trust and confidence between the parties. And you have to share enough of you to believe you can bring people into into their trust and so it's a combination of tact, diplomacy, um, and determination, quite honestly. But 
I believe in all that I do in fresh air and frankness. So I've had some very direct relationship discussions with the psychopath team and similarly with other people um, are on this subject. So it's not being manipulated, it's just saying it how it is and trying to find common ground and also to develop tactics. So, for example, um, because of the way I work, I was looking to say what would make the people in my way frightened? What would they be afraid of? Would they be afraid of being summoned here or whatever? Or what is it they're really looking for? So if I look at the railway at the time, they were looking for a significant heritage lottery fund bid. So suddenly I know that the railway needs money. So the railway needs money. Um, what could we do to help them get some money that I could offer in the sense of reciprocity? So the answer was, we will flick 1,400 people behind their bid saying you've got huge community support, you've got all the schools and 1,400 people, isn't this great? Wouldn't that be wonderful of getting that across? Turned out they decided not to progress to the Heritage Lottery bid, but nonetheless it was trying to find ways where you could bring something of benefit to them and making sure that behaviour was not about Trumpism or crowing, it was about celebrating the fact that something had happened. Now with a local authority it's more difficult to get that particular position because they tend to be afraid of nothing and the notion of reciprocity doesn't really fit to 